Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our second reading today is from Luke 6, 27 through 38. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Hear the word of the Lord. This is a uh, big passage, so I think we better pray. Lord, sometimes the things you tell us to do sound utterly foolish. And yet, we'll be fools one way or another, so let us be fools for you. Pray that you would help us to hear your word well this morning. Bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they might be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of my favorite thinkers, Frederick Beekner, says this. He, he writes, of the seven deadly sins, uh, anger is possibly the most fun. <laughs> To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothful morsel the pain you were given and the pain you were giving back in many ways is a feast fit for a king. And you know, I, I, I'm inclined to think he's right. I'm, I'm, I'm really good at nursing a grudge. <laughs> you know, I, I'm so good, in fact, that I've been known to nurse grudges over things that never even happened. Uh, you know, I've imagined the insult, the slight, the aggression that I think is coming, and I prepare accordingly. 
You know, if you can't say something nice, say something devastating. <laughs> this, is, this is my instinct. Uh, it's important that you know what kind of pastor you have. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that instinct doesn't, doesn't always get the better of me, and, and, but there, there's no denying that it's there. Uh, and so while I find our passage today kind of invigorating in a lot of ways, I also find it sort of uh, uncomfortable and, and well annoying. I, I'm tempted to start qualifying everything. You know, I, I jump immediately to the hardest things. Like, surely Jesus can't mean this about that. Or what about this situation or this thing that that person did? What about uh, terrorists and tyrants? What are we supposed to do there? I can understand Jesus wanting me to be kind to my weird neighbor, uh, but to love my enemies, to do good to them, there must be some, some wiggle room in that, right? I don't mind praying that those mis who mistreat me will see the error of their ways or experience the vengeance of the Lord, whichever comes first. But I think maybe that's not what Jesus is on about here. C.S. Lewis says that uh, uh, when we think about forgiveness, we probably shouldn't jump to the hardest, uh, most evil people we can think of. You know, because then we're, we're, uh, we're dealing with Jesus, then dealing with Jesus' words becomes kind of an exercise in, in looking for loopholes, which we're already, you know, pretty good at. <laughs> we don't need help ignoring the things Jesus tells us to do. And, and I, I think that, uh, that old Clive might say something similar about this passage. So maybe the thing to do is, is just to believe that Jesus means what he says and get into it. Because frankly, this does seem like kind of a word for these days, doesn't it? And as, in the end, as much fun as it is to imagine my enemy's downfall, I, I think it's quite a bit more interesting to wonder together what it would be like if Jesus really means what he says. And more what if the church uh, would look like if we did it. <laughs> if everyone who bears his name took Jesus at his word. I mean, that would be a, a wild thing. I, I will make one qualification. It's important to know that there are different words in Greek uh, that get translated with the one word, English word, love, right? Uh, the most common are eros, philia, and agape. And eros is where we get erotic. Uh, it's sexual, intimate love. Uh, philia is something more like friendship. You know, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, not because it's such a warm, fuzzy place to be, but because the name is made up of two different words, philia, love, and adelphos, brother, brotherly love. Right? But in the Bible, agape uh, is the most important kind of love. Uh, agape is self-giving love. It's the love ascribed to God. It's the love we're talking about when we say that God so loved the world that he gave his only son not to condemn the world, but to save it. It's what we're talking about when we marvel with St. John, see what love we have been given, that we should be called the children of God. And of course, there are elements of intimacy and friendship in when agape is fully realized, but I think there's something essentially, something qualitatively different uh, between agape and the other types of love that I think is important here, and I'm not just looking for, for loopholes. <laughs> In fact, I don't think this really makes any things that much easier, or easier at all. But when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, which he does twice, he repeats that, just in case we missed it the first time. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies, he's not calling us to share in fraternal affection for the people who've mistreated us. He's not calling us to be chummy with them. <laughs> That's not out of the realm of possibility, of course. Uh, we might end up there. Strange things happen when we hang out with Jesus, but that's not the call. The call is agape. 
Jesus is commanding agape, and it is a, it's a command, it's in the imperative mood, for those of you who wonder about these sorts of things. Gail? <laughs> um, Jesus is not making a suggestion, right? This is what discipleship means, what it means to be his apprentice in the world, to become like him. We will be an agape people. We will be a people who love because God so loves. And and as an agape people, I think three things will be true about us. One, we will refuse to dehumanize. Two, we will look sin in the face and deny its power. And three, we will refuse to take mercy off the table. We will refuse to dehumanize. We will look sin in the face and refuse its power. We will refuse to take mercy off the table. We'll refuse to dehumanize. Now, here's the thing about people. Every last one of us is made in the image of God. Every last one of them is created in the image of God. And every blessed one of us is almost an impossible miracle. Now, one estimate is that the chances of you having been born at all is one followed by a ten, or one, one in ten followed by 2,685,000 zeros which is quite a big number. Another is that it's one in 400 trillion, which is a number that you can't even fathom. It'll break your brain if you try to imagine how big that number is. And one of my favorite ways to think about how big a billion is is that if you were given $5,000 a day from the time that Columbus sailed across the Atlantic until now, you still would not be a billionaire. And a billion is not even a drop in the bucket compared to 400 trillion. So every single person is a miracle who bears the mark of the one who made the heavens and the earth, to whom the whole cosmos belongs. And every single person is someone who has the capacity to reflect that love that made everything. Which can be hard to believe some days. We might even have a hard time thinking of it. There are certainly lots of people that I have a hard time seeing as divine miracles. But what if we were a people learning to see it? learning to insist upon it, even when it's practically impossible to imagine. It would mean that we wouldn't be able to hate. We wouldn't be able to curse. We wouldn't be able to mistreat. Because in order to do those things, you have to dehumanize. We have to refuse to see someone else as a beloved of God. In order to hate and curse and mistreat, we have to refuse to see someone as a person for whom God would cross heaven and earth. In order to hate and curse and mistreat, we have to refuse to see someone as a person for whom God in Christ is entirely prepared to be poured out. To be an agape people is not to be concerned for others because they are likable or desirable or useful. It's to love the fact of them. It's to cherish their humanity. It's to seek their best because that is what God wants for them, whether they know it or act like it or not. And of course, lots of people don't know it or act like it. We don't always know it or act like it. We don't always treat life as a precious gift. We don't always treat others as the miracles of divine delight that they are, even the ones we disagree with everything about. And that's one way to understand sin. Sin is whatever mangles our God-bearing image and whatever keeps us from witnessing and seeing that image in others. 
Sin is the sludge that keeps us from living and moving and having our being in the way that we're created to, in abundant life-giving relationship with God, with our neighbors, and with creation. Now, the Bible often uses language of, of being enslaved or captive to sin. It's always confining and restricting. It, it makes us less than we were meant to be. But if we're growing in agape, if we're becoming agape people in the company of Jesus, we will be increasingly people who look sin in the face and deny its power over us. And to be an agape people does not mean shrugging our shoulders at injustice. It does not mean justifying wrong. It does not mean cowering in, front of, or in the face of hatred and violence. It doesn't mean letting ourselves be doormats to those who maniacally cling at power. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to the greed that is destroying our lives and our planet. But it does mean responding to the ways of sin and death without resorting to the means of sin and death. We respond to the ways of sin and death without resorting to the means of sin and death. It means refusing to meet sin with sin, or death with death, or violence with violence. It means refusing to dehumanize others even when they dehumanize us. Now, agape is not passive. Jesus is never passive. But he refuses to play by the overbearing terms of a world addicted to sin and death. He refuses to mimic those who grasp and grab and cling at control. He refuses to overcome the violence of the world with a violence of his own. He's going to do something altogether different. And he calls us to do the same. You know, the strange and utterly contrary to all of my instincts, things that Jesus uh, calls us to are, are not passive, weak acceptance of hatred and cursing and mistreatment. These are creative disruptions of the ways and means of sin and death. You know, to turn the other cheek, for instance, is not a masochistic willingness to let someone hit you again. It's not justifying abuse. In fact, it's more of an image than an instruction. And the folks Jesus was speaking to in the first century knew a couple of things that we may not know. They knew, for instance, that someone would only hit someone else with their right hand, because that's how it was done. The left hand was used for other things, which we will not talk about here. And he's not talking about two people who are equal in a duel. Right? And this comes clear, actually, in Matthew's telling of the story. Matthew says that Jesus says that if someone strikes you on the, the right cheek, turn to him, to him the, other, the left cheek also. <laughs> Right? And the only way to hit someone on the right cheek with your right hand is with a backhand. This is, this is the strike of a superior to an inferior. Right? It, it, it's in, in order for them to hit you on the other cheek, they're going to have to do it as an equal. They will have to look you in the eyes and see your humanity and maybe remember their own. And I think it's worth reflecting for a second. There's a whole other sermon in this thought. But, but Jesus expects his followers to be on the side of the oppressed, not the inconvenienced, but the oppressed, the people who are actively experiencing the violence of the world. That's where we stand. Those are the ones with whom we stand. This is a bold refusal to accept the kinds of power dynamics that would make it reasonable for one person to hit another. It upends the expected order of things. It makes violence ridiculous and refuses to meet sin with sin. The same with the instruction to give away your shirt if someone wants your coat. Jesus is talking about debt repayment here. 
And if someone is having to give away their coat, uh, it means they don't have anything else to give other than the shirt. In this case, it would be a long shirt. Other than the shirt on their back. The situation lays bare an unjust economic system. And the thing is, in, in context, nakedness was shameful, but the, the shame was more on the person who saw the nakedness than the naked person. Now, Jesus is basically saying, hey, if you want my coat, you're going to have to take my undies too. He's revealing the, the shame and the callousness that would allow someone to take even the last thing that someone had and call it justice. Again, it's staring sin in the face, making it ridiculous, and refusing to play by its rules. You know, both of these instructions, turning the other cheek, giving away the shirt, are Jesus telling us that we are made for more than the paltry and pathetic ways of sin and death. It's him insisting that God will not overcome our brokenness by breaking us, that God will not overcome ugliness with ugliness. It's revealing, as Dr. King said, that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Jesus is insisting that God's plans for the world are more than we can ask or imagine. We are not subject to the ways of the kingdoms we're used to. We are subjects of the kingdom of God, which is something altogether different. We're called and claimed by the one who won't just die for good folks and the loved ones. He will give everything for us while we were still enemies. And while we were sinners, St. Paul says, Christ died for who? Not the righteous, not the ones who had it all together, not the perfectly good and lovable. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were enemies of God, you and me and them, God came after us with a love that not even death could stop. While we were still enemies, God came after us with a love that death could not stop. And when we understand that, then we understand something about what Jesus is going on about here. That's the love that Jesus is calling us into. This beautiful, audacious, all things new love that will not settle for broken systems or mangled relationships or dehumanizing indifference. We are called and claimed for more than that. We are to be creative and risky and mischievous in love. We are to chase after a love that is bigger than the narrow range of folks we would love if it was left up to us. God so loved the world, the righteous and the unrighteous. Ours is the God who is ridiculously kind even to the ungrateful and the wicked because ours is the God who is relentless in love, which is why mercy is never off the table. We get to insist with the one who's willing to die for the claim that no one is ever completely lost. I'm pretty sure that's true freedom, whatever else is being trumpeted these days. We often think of freedom as the ability to be unhindered by anything or anyone that we don't want or like. Right? But that's ultimately living life by subtraction. It's myopic. Eventually all we can see is the tip of our noses and not much else. But Jesus is inviting us to expansive life, to more, love more than we are naturally inclined to, to do more good than we would do left to our own devices, to be more generous than we think is even possible. And all of this may seem kind of idealistic, to think that this is the way that God is going to change the world and save it. But I don't think it is. I think it's just hard. I often come back to the G.K. Chesterton quotation that 
Uh, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. I mean, it's hard to love people who don't want to love us. It's hard to show mercy to the apparently unmerciful. It's hard to expand our circles beyond our chosen few. It's hard, and so we don't do it. It's hard, but it's worth it. Because it's what we're made for, and everything else is a lie. And the Frederick Buechner quote I started off with uh, ends like this. It says, In many ways, anger is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. You know, when we default to, or, or indulge in anger and vengeance, rehearsing our hurts or the hurt that we'll give, we're not getting what's ours or giving others what they deserve. When we choose selfishness over generosity, we're actually losing out in the weird metrics of God's way. We're forfeiting our truest identity as those made in the image of God, the God who will cross heaven and earth to get to us and give everything for us, even when we don't deserve it. And so what would it be like to heed Jesus' call to creatively disrupt the ways and means of death and violence? the ways of dehumanizing selfishness, the ways of power-grabbing greed. How are we being called to rehumanize, to look sin in the face and deny its power, to show radical mercy? And again, we may not want to jump to the hardest examples. <laughs> Perhaps we want to start just where we are. You know, pray for someone you don't want to pray for. Do good to someone you would rather not do good to. Be light in those sin-dim places that we all know and would rather avoid. Not because it's easy, but because it's what we're made for. Because in Jesus, it's what we're called and claimed for. So may it be so.